The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. This is Jacob Yasha Schneider, editor of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, welcoming you to the American Thoracic Society's podcast. I would like to introduce our editorial board member, Dr. Richard Wondering, professor of medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and director of the MICU at Northwestern Memorial Hospital. He was also the American Thoracic Society's co-chair of the last Community Acquired Pneumonia's Guidelines. Welcome, Dr. Wondering. Thanks, Joshua. Today I have with me Kevin Wilson and Holger Schunemann. Kevin is uh, the deputy editor of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine for Up to Date and documents editor for the American Thoracic Society. He's a member of the faculty at Boston University School of Medicine. And Holger Schunemann is currently the professor and chair of the Department of Clinical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at McMaster University. He is one of the co-chairs of the great working group and has served as a methodologist for many guideline development panels. And today we're discussing one of their manuscripts that will be coming out in the June 1 issue of the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine entitled An Appraisal of the Evidence Underlying Performance Measures for Community-Acquired Pneumonia. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So what was the background for this study? So several years ago, physicians in Massachusetts received letters from the State Board of Insurance indicating which of three performance tiers we had been placed in, and this was based on our compliance with certain performance measures. This placement in the tiers was unexpected, so as you might imagine, it became a major topic of conversation among the faculty at my institution. So around the same time, I was preparing to give my monthly talk on evidence-based medicine to the fellows and faculty at Boston University. So I decided to try and capture the moment and talk about whether performance measures were based upon high-quality evidence. I actually tried to get the performance measures on which we were judged from the State Board of Insurance, but they would not release them to me. So instead, I elected to use the Joint Commissions and Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services performance measures for community-acquired pneumonia as an example. I gave the talk, and it was really well-received. The audience was very enthusiastic. So I realized that there was interest in the topic, and that prompted me to, to perform this study that we're discussing. And what did you find? What were the main conclusions that you uh, were able to see from your, your study? Well, we did the study in a rigorous fashion, meaning what we did is we did a full systematic review of the evidence for each intervention that was being recommended by a performance measure. We estimated the effects of each intervention, and then we appraised the quality evidence using GRADE. The interventions that we looked at, there were six of them. They included pneumococcal vaccination, performing blood cultures for patients admitted to the ICU, a smoking cessation, initiation of antibiotics within six hours, using a guideline-compliant antibiotic or antibiotic regimen, and also um, influenza vaccination. And to be honest, the findings were completely opposite of what I expected. I thought that there was going to be moderate or high-quality evidence that the interventions would improve clinical outcomes, but instead what I found was that only five of the six interventions actually improved clinical outcomes, and amongst these five interventions, only one of them, influenza vaccination, is based upon high-quality evidence. 
One is based on moderate quality evidence, and the other three are based on low or very low quality evidence. And in fact, one of the interventions, the one-step smoking cessation, was actually contradicted by moderate quality evidence. Uh, this was much of a surprise. As you say, several of these findings are fairly controversial, and some of the recommendations are fairly controversial. What surprised you the most about these results? There was no one thing. It was really the constellation of the findings that surprised me the most. In other words, going into the study, I wouldn't have been surprised if one of the interventions that was recommended by a performance measure was based on low-quality evidence. But the fact that one of the interventions had no effect on clinical outcomes and the fact that three of the performance measures were based upon low-quality or very low-quality evidence really surprised me. And how easy was it to actually find these studies to either support or, or not support some of the recommendations? It depended on the recommendation. There was a large body of evidence for pneumococcal vaccination and influenza vaccination, but then other recommendations like blood cultures and antibiotic timing, there was a general paucity of evidence. So it really depended on the recommendation. And how about uh, time to first antibiotic dose? That's been clearly one of the more controversial aspects of the management of CAP. How strong was the data regarding this topic? Well, as you mentioned, it is quite controversial, and this is in large part because there is a previous performance measure that recommended antibiotic therapy within four hours. And subsequent studies showed that antibiotics within four hours probably increased misdiagnosis and inappropriate antibiotic use, and it was unclear how much they actually improve outcomes. We went and looked at the current performance measure, which is a recommendation for antibiotics within six hours as opposed to the previous four hours. And in general, there is a paucity of evidence available to inform our decision about the, the performance measure. Basically, they found no studies that compared antibiotics within six hours to antibiotics later. All the studies seem to compare antibiotics within four hours to later antibiotics, or alternatively, antibiotics within eight hours to a different duration. So what I had to do is go back and look at studies that looked at the effect of antibiotics initiated within various time periods over a range of time periods and looked at the effect on clinical outcomes had to extract the data and do my, my own measurements. In the end, after doing that, it appeared that antibiotics within four hours were associated with a lower likelihood of having a prolonged hospital stay, as well as a possible trend toward decreased mortality. But the effect on the likelihood of prolonged hospital stay was based on low quality evidence, and the effect on mortality was based on very low quality evidence. So what this means is that we have very little confidence in either the direction or the magnitude of the estimated effects. Another somewhat controversial area is many of us have been somewhat ambivalent about the benefit of pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine, at least, uh, and yet the meta-analysis demonstrated some substantial benefit. How do you reconcile these kinds of uh, observations? Yeah, I think there are possibly several underlying reasons. One of them uh, certainly relates to the magnitude of the effect in regards to whether the effect is actually large on a relative level as opposed to the absolute level. So let's say that um, mortality from pneumonia would be 50% in patients who are admitted to the hospital. If we were to apply the intervention as it is described here in this paper, then the reduction 
would probably be in the order of about 25%. Um, that is in absolute terms. In other words, um, about one out of four people or 25 out of 100 would actually be saved. Now, the reality, as you know, is some um, very different. The baseline risk, the actual baseline risk for mortality from pneumonia is probably much, much smaller. It's probably in the order of about 1%. And if you apply the effect that we found there, which is about a reduction by half, to a, a mortality risk of about 1% or a risk for complications of, of less than 1%, then the actual benefit is much smaller. And it is probably in the order of 0.5% or even smaller, and that means that you would probably save only about five in a thousand people, which still would um, possibly lead you to apply this intervention broadly. However, as um, any intervention comes with potential downsides, we are obviously much less certain if the absolute benefits are very small. So, in other words, when we look at the large benefits, we always need to relate it to what the actual underlying event rate or the underlying baseline risk in a certain population is. And that leads me to the other point in that our reservation to apply this recommendation or this intervention broadly possibly relates to the fact that um, we are not entirely certain that we can apply the trial evidence, as there were randomized controlled trials, the trial evidence to the population that we are potentially interested in. In other words, the trials actually included patients that were potentially very different from those who, who, for whom the recommendations are intended, which are the, the elderly, older than 65 years, and possibly patients with um, comorbidities. When the trial has been performed, at least to a large degree, in younger patients and in patients who didn't have comorbidities. At the same time, they were performed in patients who possibly were recovering from just any um, infection as opposed to patients for whom the recommendations are intended, and that is possibly patients with a community-acquired pneumonia. So there are a number of reasons why our confidence in actually applying the, the trial results to the patient at hand or to the patient population at hand may not be very, very large. In that actually kind of leads to the question about the grade system approach to appraise the quality of evidence. Do you see that that's been a beneficial aspect of trying to take this data that sometimes is a little bit disparate in trying to put some rationale into the actual recommendations? Well, I would have thought so. So the interest, my interest in working with Dr. Wilson on this particular manuscript came from um, attending a conference a few years ago at the Agency for Healthcare Quality and Research that brought together performance measure developers. And it became very clear that um, performance measure developers obviously put a very high confidence in recommendations that are issued by the various groups that produce guidelines. Now, what has also become clear is that there is a large degree of variability in terms of how these guidelines and recommendations are obviously developed. And therefore, any form of structuring or developing a systematic approach that also provides transparency in terms of how recommendations are developed is, must be of benefit. And GRADE is one of the approaches. It's an approach that is very widely used, but it's only one of the approaches that potentially could be used. So I think there is a, there is a large benefit because we do perform a systematic assessment of the quality of evidence, build these assessments on systematic reviews, and we achieve a certain degree of transparency that those who develop performance measures actually require. Having said all this, I think there are two, um, or there's at least one additional issue, and that relates to the separation 
education, which is explicitly done using this approach, and this is extremely important for the development of performance measures, so that I believe that there is a benefit from using this structured approach. Now that we've kind of talked about the approach and some of the results, what implications do you see for performance measures in public reporting from the results of your study? The answer is somewhat general in that I believe the results here can be applied to future performance measure development. So the development of performance measures does require a very thorough analysis of the actual recommendations and the evidence that are issued and that is described by those who develop performance measures. So in other words, these are not necessarily organizations that are involved, obviously, in the development of recommendations and guidelines so that there needs to be a better interplay and a better preparation of guidelines and recommendations so that um, performance measures actually can, can be appropriately developed. Frequently, guidelines provide recommendations that are just taken by those who develop performance measures without careful analysis so that I think the implications of our results are that um, those who develop performance measures need to look very, very carefully in regards to what are strong recommendations, what are weak or conditional recommendations, select the recommendations carefully by looking at the potential benefits and downsides, look at the implementability of the potential recommendations, which in part is expressed by issuing strong recommendations by the guideline developers. So the implications, in my view, are that there could be um, better collaboration between guideline developers and performance measure developers, and that also relates to public reporting and that guideline developers could pay more attention to providing recommendations that the public can interpret more appropriately. So having uh, been on the other side of the coin and uh, being a guideline developer, one of the issues to me was particularly interesting about your manuscript was the actual paucity of data that were asked to try and come up with some recommendations based on it. Do you want to comment on some of the implications for guideline development, per se? That is a finding that we as guideline developers, so in complete agreement with your observations as a guideline developer, um, frequently encounter. For the most part, this has to do with study design in that up until a few years ago, our primary focus in both study design, development, and conduct of original studies, as well as in systematic reviews, our primary focus was on one or possibly two important outcomes. But in reality, decision-making at the bedside usually considers many, many outcomes. And therefore, the um, either trial or observational study evidence that we use for the development of recommendations doesn't necessarily fill all the gaps that we have or answers all the questions that we have when we develop recommendations. In other words, we would like to know about the important benefits as well as the important downsides, uh, research implications, etc. So when we don't have this information that is required for decision-making, both on a guideline level as well as on a bedside level, then our confidence in the actual benefits and downsides may be reduced, and we end up with lower confidence overall or lower quality of the evidence. However, that is not to say that we can't develop recommendations. We are just possibly not as sure as we would be at, um, if we had high-quality evidence for all of the outcomes that we are interested in. 
So the implications for guideline development really are that we probably need to be a bit more careful in issuing strong recommendations in many instances where there is information for important outcomes missing. Um, we need to be very careful in terms of applying the results. That is, we need to look carefully at the transferability and applicability of the results. And just to kind of close the loop here, Kevin, how did your faculty uh, respond to the findings that you actually got with this study when you reviewed what the evidence base was for what they're being graded on? Well, there was a lot of surprise. I think most people, like myself, felt that if their performance was going to be measured, that it would be measured on an intervention for which there was good evidence. I think in general, my faculty and probably many physicians don't mind having their performance measured, but they expect that their performance will be measured on interventions for which there's good evidence. Any other last comments that either of you would like to make? I would perhaps just add that weak recommendations are potential candidates for performance measures as well. Under those circumstances, and I do believe we refer to that in the manuscript or other writing, under those circumstances where weak recommendations are considered a performance measure, it is the potential discussion or decision-making that could be documented by a physician or by a clinician in practice that could serve as a performance measure. And that is one of the aspects that has been not very carefully considered in the development of performance measures that um, the actual discussion, the actual shared decision-making could be a performance measure itself when the recommendations are not clear-cut and when the patient values and preferences or research implications or other considerations are particularly important. Certainly one area that requires research and a lot of consideration, but an important one. Yeah, and I think that, to me, that's one of the strong uh, points that come out of your manuscript is that we really need a lot more research in this area to fill in the holes, and there's a sense that the data is just weak, not necessarily that the conclusions are wrong, but that we have just a real paucity of data to support the conclusions. Would, would that be a fair statement? I, I would completely agree with that. There is no lack of guidance that can be issued or guidance should be issued, but it also means that we could possibly be even more confident in the guidance that we provide. And I would just add that I think it's better maybe to use fewer performance measures that are based on high-quality or at least moderate-quality evidence from which you'd get a strong recommendation rather than developing a whole bunch of performance measures based on weaker evidence just because um, the intervention is measurable in some way. Well, congratulations to the two of you on publication of this very provocative and interesting uh, data, and, and thank you for participating in this podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you.